0: To the Extent That is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at americanbar.org.
1: We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to another one of our programs on legal professionals and purpose-driven organizations dedicated to making a positive economic, social, and environmental impact on our world. We're having a series of conversations with people who are committed to making a difference by contributing their time, expertise, and experience to supporting these organizations and participating in the development of new solutions for achieving sustainability. The series, which we are calling Corporate Lawyers Changing the World and Insiders Look at Corporate Social Responsibility Is sponsored and supported by the business law section of the American Bar Association, which has over 50,000 members and has just published the Corporate Social Responsibility Deskbook. Sales of the deskbook have been gratifying, and these podcasts provide a great opportunity to provide more information within the legal community and to entrepreneurs, directors, executives, managers, investors, and others interested in one of the most important global topics of our time. I'm Alan Gutterman of Gutterman Law, working in the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Area, and I'm your host for the series and one of the co-editors and authors of the desk book. Today, we will be hearing from Michael Littenberg, who is a partner at Ropes & Gray in the Securities and Public Companies practice. Michael is based in the New York office and is part of his practice for almost 30 years Michael has been active in advising leading public and private companies, asset managers, and asset owners on CSR, ESG, and supply chain compliance matters. Michael is widely viewed as one of the leading practitioners in this emerging area, and I'm delighted to have him with us today. And, and Michael, before we get into the conversation, uh, I want to thank you again for all the hard work that you did on the book, Uh, making such a great contribution on an important topic and uh, appreciate once again uh, your willingness to share additional experiences and purposes with our listeners. Let's start with a real quick overview of where you work and who you work with.
0: Sure. So my name is is Michael Littenberg. I'm a partner here at Ropes & Gray, and um, I work with uh, approximately 200 companies um, in connection with their Corporate Social Responsibility, ESG, and Supply Chain Compliance Matters, uh, including some of the largest, uh,
1: most well-known companies in the world. The the title for the book uh, includes Corporate Social Responsibility, or CSR, uh, but there are a lot of different ideas about what's going on in this area. Uh, What's your understanding of CSR, ESG, sustainability, purpose and and any of the other terms that are commonly used uh, when discussing this topic and how do you explain it all to your clients and colleagues friends and, and family who who ask uh, what you're doing on a day-to-day basis
0: sure that's a great question to start off with and certainly a lot of terms um so first i uh try not to talk about work stuff with friends and family i find that's the kind of- <laughs> not having any friends as well as your family leaving the room when they see you coming. Um, If there's, I guess, probably one way for people to remember from this podcast, that's probably it. But um, seriously, uh, for how I explain the area to clients and colleagues, um, you're correct. There's a lot of different ideas about what's going on in this area. Um, It can be a hard subject area for folks to get their arms around since there's no single definition for each of the terms that you mentioned. Um, But I'll tell you how I think about these terms. Um, ESG, that's an investor-focused term. Um, I think of ESG as the environmental, social, and governance factors that are relevant to the long-term performance or sustainability of a company. Um, Of course, not all ESG factors are long-term in nature. Uh, Some can have implications in the short run for companies, such as issues relating to human capital management, uh, supply chains, as we're seeing now, um, and data privacy, among other areas. Purpose, which is a company's reason for being, um, is closely linked with ESG. It's been a particular focus of some of the large institutional asset managers. Larry Fink from BlackRock summed up, uh, I think, very well how investors think about purpose. As he noted in his 2020 letter to CEOs, ultimately, purpose is the engine of long-term profitability. Um, But purpose can be broader than ESG. Uh, It can bring in societal and stakeholder considerations that go beyond profitability considerations. For example, the recent Davos Manifesto, which is the World Economic Forum's spin on corporate purpose that takes a broad view of purpose broader than that that was espoused by the Business Roundtable last summer. Um, I think that's a nice segue to the term corporate social responsibility, Uh, Although CSR also is closely aligned with ESG, like Purpose, uh, I view it as encompassing a broader set of stakeholders and considerations. For example, uh, CSR also may pick up philanthropic and community activities that may pick up human rights impacts uh, that don't squarely fit within ESG as investors think about that term uh, for a particular company. Uh, A couple of other Mm -hmm. things to note on this question. Uh, First, the lack of universally accepted terminology in this subject area is a challenge uh, for many companies. Uh, it requires companies to step back and think about uh, not only about their purpose, uh, which isn't always well-defined, but also what they're trying to achieve through their ESG sustainability or CSR program. And that's difficult at many companies since there's invariably many different competing views internally and visions around Uh, around these terms and what a program should look like. Um, Also, it requires companies to settle on common terminology and how they define the terms that they're using. Um, When I'm in meetings at companies, not only do I find that uh, people often are using different terminology uh, in this area, but even when they're using the same terminology, uh, people are often ascribing different meanings to the terms that they're using. Um, Second and finally, Uh, It's important to keep in mind that these are evolving concepts, uh, how mainstream investors think about ESG, how stakeholders uh, think more broadly about CSR. Uh, Both of these are continuing to rapidly evolve. So, for example, I mentioned the recent statements on corporate purpose from the Business Roundtable and the WEF. Those, Those illustrate the continuing evolution of this subject area, And another example is the rapidly increasing focus on modern slavery issues. And these are just two examples from a very
1: long laundry list that I can cite. That, uh, that's, it's very interesting. In, in talking to to other guests um, on the series, um, each of them has had, uh, provided us with a, with, with a a good a good lens into how they try and explain it and, and and that sort of thing. Again, even though we use corporate social responsibility as the title of the book, um, the, these other terms are very very important. Um, another thing I I talked to to folks about on the on the series, which is I I found very interesting, is 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 finding out a little more about the particular path that they took. Uh, to get into this practice area. And they they varied, uh, um, you know, even though we have have many contributors who have a good deal of experience uh, as lawyers and and business counselors and everything, for several of them, um, the movement into ESG, CSR, impact investing, that sort of thing, uh, a bit of serendipity. Um, in, in the back, you know, in terms of who they worked with, uh, clients that came their way, uh, economic conditions in some case, a decision to go out and do something on a pro bono uh, uh, project that, 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 that blossomed in, into where they are today. Um, what was what, your path been like, Michael, and, and, and how did you land where you are today?
0: Well, definitely some serendipity. Uh, I think like most private private practice attorneys, uh, my path has in part been driven by a combination of not only what I was interested in, but also what I was asked to work on early in my career, and then also the types of clients uh, that I worked with. Um, one of the first assignments that I was asked to work on as a summer associate, so that was more than 30 years ago, involved uh, a responsible sourcing matter. Of course, we didn't use that terminology uh, in those days, uh, but after that time, as part of my practice, I then continued to work on supply chain uh, compliance and responsible sourcing and similar matters when those would arise, uh, admittedly and frequently in those days. Uh, but my day job, so to speak, was primarily advising public companies in connection with capital markets and M&A transactions uh, and governance matters, uh, and also advising private equity and other alternative investment managers on transactional matters, uh, areas that I'm still very involved in today. Um, but given my interest in, in this subject area, my substantive experience, the client base I work with, not surprisingly, I became increasingly involved with ESG, CSR, business and human rights, and uh, supply chain compliance as these became more important areas of focus for both public companies and asset managers.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I, I should mention, uh, before we want to dive in a little bit more into some of the topics that 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 were covered in the chapter on the book that uh you know michael and and his team uh have pulled together uh you know a very valuable and, and impressive uh, group of materials on on the firm on the firm's website uh, uh which uh folks should should referred to uh, for more details and and, and many of the articles and things that that have been done are, are, are quite valuable particularly in in the supply chain area that Michael just referred to so um, it's a great resource for those of you looking to get started in this area or find out more um, let's let's turn to some of the topics that we covered in the book Michael and then go to a few few questions on on this so that, that, that again uh, Michael's chapter, covered reporting and disclosure. Um, When we talk about CSR disclosure, what does that encompass?
0: Um, Well, so CSR disclosure um, brings in a big tent of items. It refers to both required and voluntary disclosures. Uh, Required disclosures include those that are mandated by regulation. Um, There's too many to describe them all today on this call, but I'll highlight just a few to illustrate what it is we're talking about. Um, An area of particular disclosure focused by legislators over the last several years has been modern slavery. The first modern slavery disclosure requirement was the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act. That was adopted almost 10 years ago now. That was followed by the UK Modern Slavery Act in 2015, and then the Australian Commonwealth Modern Slavery Act uh, came around in 2018. These three Modern Slavery Acts are what are referred to as disclosure-only regulations, and by that I mean that they require companies to discuss, among other things, their efforts to address modern slavery risk. However, they don't require substantive compliance actions. So in other words, the regulations don't require subject companies to put in place compliance policies, procedures, or programs to combat modern slavery. And the idea behind disclosure-only modern slavery regulation is that it's intended to create uh, what's known as a race to the top by focusing companies on the issue of modern slavery and also how their peers are uh, addressing the issue. Um, and then these regulations also provide stakeholders with information so that they can assess the adequacy of a company's modern slavery compliance program so that then external stakeholders such as NGOs and others uh, can decide which companies they want to target for improvement. These three acts require modern slavery disclosures out by thousands of companies, and the acts aren't limited to just businesses headquartered uh, in the jurisdictions in which the acts were adopted. A significant number of businesses headquartered in the U.S. are subject to the U.K. Modern Slavery Act and the Australian Act as well, and that's because these acts pick up all companies that do business in those jurisdictions, subject to relatively low monetary and other thresholds. Um, Another area of mandatory CSR disclosure that's familiar uh, to many U.S. public companies is Conflict Minerals. Uh, The U.S. Conflict Minerals rule was uh, required to be adopted as part of Dodd-Frank, and that's intended to address human rights abuses in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we're now coming up on the seventh year of filings uh, under the Conflict Minerals rule, and those filings are due on uh, May 31st of this year. Um, The conflict minerals rule requires annual disclosures by U.S. public companies uh, that manufacture or contract to manufacture products that contain tin, tantalum, tungsten, or gold, uh, and those are often referred to as 3TG. And the specific disclosures that public companies have to make depend upon whether the 3TG originated or is believed to have originated in the DRC region or in another part of the world. Um, And there's many other examples of... um, uh, mandatory uh, disclosure-based or modern slavery, uh, disclosure-based uh, CSR regulations or uh, regulations that require disclosure in addition to other compliance obligations. Um, some of the examples of foreign mandatory uh, CSR disclosures that apply to the local operations of U.S.-based businesses include Section 135 of the Indian Companies Act and also the French Uh, equal pay disclosure law. And those are just two examples, and I picked those two just to further illustrate uh, that CSR disclosures are required by several countries, uh, and they cover many different sorts of issues. Um, So, let me now switch over to the second piece of the question, uh, which is voluntary CSR disclosure. And the vast majority of the CSR disclosure that companies publish is voluntary, Uh, This includes the CSR or sustainability reports that companies publish, uh, as well as most of their website disclosures pertaining to CSR. And not surprisingly, there is substantial variation in the voluntary CSR disclosures that companies publish. Uh, Some of our clients publish two-page CSR reports that highlight a limited number of key topics or metrics. We have others that publish... Uh, substantially more comprehensive reports that approach 200 or even in some cases more pages, um, and similarly, there's significant variability in website disclosures uh, around CSR that companies publish. Um, some companies I work with have extensive CSR sites that include detailed information on particular topics, as well as include policies online around CSR issues. On the other end of the spectrum, I have clients that have minimal to no. On CSR information on their websites. Um, But with that said, having no voluntary CSR website disclosure is rare these days for U.S. public companies, certainly public companies of any size. And also we're seeing most S&P 500 companies now publish uh, CSR reports, in many cases annually. Um, There's, of course, no one-size-fits-all for voluntary CSR disclosure. To some extent, the approach is Industry-specific, for example, apparel manufacturers and mining companies tend to have more CSR disclosure than software developers, given the nature of their respective businesses. Uh, In addition, circling back on the point that I made earlier, uh, for a CSR program to be successful, a company should know what it's trying to achieve. Uh, A company also should have a clear goal in mind for what it's trying to achieve with its disclosure. So put another way, effective CSR disclosure should be tailored to the audience that it's intended for in the message. Uh, that the company's trying to convey. And I know that sounds obvious, uh, but not all voluntary CSR disclosure checks those boxes.
1: What are obviously CSR disclosures have been evolving uh you know both due to regulatory requirements and, and other factors. Um what what are some of the drivers of this evolution, Michael, and and, and where do you see that going?
0: Sure. So there's several drivers. Um, I'll mention four in particular today. Uh, First, new legislation. Uh, For example, the first statements under the Australian Commonwealth Modern Slavery Act are required to be published this year or next, depending upon uh, a company's particular fiscal year. There's also pending and proposed CSR disclosure requirements across several different jurisdictions. Uh, Many of those are going to affect U.S.-based multinationals over time. So, for example, the pending Dutch child labor due diligence law, uh, which is probably going to take effect in a couple of years, that's going to require companies uh, that provide goods or services to end users based in the Netherlands to publish a declaration uh, indicating that they exercise due diligence in order to prevent the goods and services that they Sell to Dutch end users from being produced using child labor. Um, CSR with the disclosure components also been proposed in Switzerland and Canada. It's in the earlier stage in Germany, stages in Germany and Norway and several other European countries, uh, as well as the EU level. So I think all of that is, you know, certainly pointing toward more uh, regulatory disclosure in this area. Um, another big driver for a lot of companies is ESG integration. And what I mean by ESG integration is the integration of ESG factors into investment and engagement decisions by mainstream investors. And investors have not only been calling for more disclosure, but more disclosure that's comparable, consistent, and financially relevant. Uh, a likely game-changer in voluntary CSR disclosure is called by leading asset managers for companies to publish disclosures in line with both the SASB standards and the TCFD recommendations. And in his 2020 annual letter to CEOs, Larry Fink at BlackRock uh, they requested that companies do this by year-end. Um, and all the, the biggest at BlackRock certainly isn't the only asset manager um, making this request. Uh, a third driver, which is related to ESG integration, is the increase in both the number of ESG ratings and their use by mainstream asset managers. Uh, A substantial part of the ratings are based on company disclosures. As a result, many companies have been enhancing their disclosures to positively impact their scores. And then the fourth and final driver uh, that I'll mention is that companies have been enhancing their CSR disclosures to more effectively connect with other stakeholders. Uh, Two constituencies constituencies in particular stand out, um, customers, Uh, for consumer-facing businesses and employees and prospective hires. And this second constituency, employees and prospective hires, um, has uh, become especially important in the tight labor market since there's many studies out there that show that younger workers, in particular,
1: want to work at a company that shares their values. Mm. A significant number of drivers there, certainly for your clients, Uh, I have to expect that that also has had a big impact on uh, your role as as legal counsel for your clients and uh, that you've had to change, learn, and evolve along the way uh, as these have have played out. What are some of the the changes you've seen in your role um, as, as these drivers have moved forward? Sure. So certainly
0: we've all had to change and evolve in this area. Um, I think maybe what I'll do is I'll also just talk a little bit about, you know, how I think the role of in-house legal counsel in particular has changed in this area, because I think, you know, perhaps that's evolved even more dramatically than the role of outside counsel around these issues. Um, legal departments historically viewed CSR disclosures as something that was outside of their ambit. Uh, CSR disclosure was viewed by most legal departments is feel-good puffery that didn't require legal involvement. And that all started to change uh, with the adoption of mandatory CSR disclosure requirements of things such as the Conflict Minerals Rule, the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act, the UK Modern Slavery Act. Um, These regulations require disclosures that are not only legally compliant, but that are also factually precise, and certainly then that's also all changed, you know, the role of outside counsel around these sorts of disclosures as well and their involvement with companies on these sorts of issues. Um, We've been focusing a lot today on disclosure-based CSR regulations, um, but substantive regulation also is resulting in more legal department involvement in CSR programs uh, more generally as well as specifically with respect to disclosure. And by substantive legislation, what I'm referring to is legislation that imposes substantive compliance program obligations, so beyond just disclosure. And in the U.S., examples include things like the Tariff Act, Section 307 of that Act, um, the FAR or Federal Acquisition Regulation, uh anti-human trafficking provisions, and then the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, and with the increase in sub- substantive CSR regulation, it's become increasingly important for voluntary CSR disclosures to be synced up with uh, substantive CSR uh, compliance requirements and programs. Um, another important development that's increasing the role of legal counsel, both in-house and externally. Uh, is ESG integration by mainstream investors, which we talked about a bit um, already. And with mainstream investors focusing on CSR disclosures, it's becoming even more important that voluntary disclosures be not only well-crafted, but they they take into account the anti-fraud provisions of the federal securities laws. Um, And then I'll talk about one other area. So I've been talking about specific disclosures, uh, but the role of legal counsel has evolved well beyond just reviewing specific CSR disclosures. Um, It's also increasingly involves, especially for internal practitioners, oversight of CSR disclosure, helping to guide disclosure strategy, ensuring appropriate CSR disclosure controls are in place, assessing risks arising out of particular CSR disclosures, and then also assessing alignment of CSR disclosures with disclosure standards and frameworks, uh, as well as the stewardship guidelines. ratings and rankings. Um, And I think, you know, the role of counsel, both internal and external, uh, as it relates to CSR disclosures, it's going to continue to evolve. I don't see that ending anytime soon. Uh, And of course, the role of counsel in CSR programs more generally beyond just disclosure uh, is
1: rapidly evolving as well and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Michael, you noted that CSR disclosures are evolving in response to disclosure standards and frameworks. Uh, What are some of the most important standards and frameworks that companies should be aware of?
0: Sure. So the two most important standards and frameworks for uh, U.S. companies, in particular public companies, uh, to be aware of uh, are the SASB standards and the TCFD recommendations. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, companies are receiving increasing pressure from large asset managers uh, such as BlackRock, uh, as well as others to publish disclosures that are in line with the SASB standards and with the TCFD recommendations. And SASB and TCFD disclosures also are being taken into account in, in ESG ratings. Uh, for the uninitiated, um, on this podcast, uh, SASB stands for the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. SASB has developed separate standards for 77 different industries. The standards are intended to pick up industry-specific material sustainability factors likely to impact financial performance, and each standard includes recommended metrics as well as discussion topics. Um, The TCFD recommendations were developed by the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on climate-related financial disclosures. Um, I know that's a mouthful. That's why we said TCFD. Mm -hmm. Uh, The TCFD recommendations are intended to uh, encourage companies to evaluate and disclose material climate-related risks and opportunities as part of their financial filing preparation and reporting processes. And the recommendations are centered around four elements, governance, strategy, risk management, and finally, metrics and targets. And the TCFD recommendations are complementary with SASB standards, uh, so it's not an either-or choice, and I think that's something that sometimes companies um, have some trouble getting their arms around with. Uh, There's other important standards and frameworks in addition to SASB and TCFD uh, that companies should be aware of. Uh, I'll mention just a a couple. Um, The most important for companies to be aware of are the GRI standards. Uh, GRI stands for Global Reporting Initiative. The GRI standards are a voluntary framework for reporting on economic, environmental, and social impacts uh, to a wide variety of global stakeholders. And so those stakeholders range from civil society to investors. And GRI takes a different approach than SASB. Rather than industry-specific standards, GRI has three Universal standards, um, and those address foundation, general disclosures, and management approach. And then there's 33 different topic-specific standards, and those are organized into three pillars, economic, environmental, and social. Uh, SASB and GRI are not mutually exclusive. Uh, Many companies publish disclosures that are aligned with both standards since they do serve the needs of uh, somewhat different, albeit overlapping, constituencies. Um, I want to mention two other disclosure regimes that frequently come up. Um, first, uh, many companies complete annual CDP questionnaires. Uh, CDP was formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project. CDP solicits information via uh, questionnaire on behalf of more than 650 institutional investors, and these in- investors collectively have over 87 trillion investments trillion uh, in assets under management. And CDP has. Three annual questionnaires uh, that they send out, and those relate to climate, water, and forests, and companies are scored based on their responses anywhere from an A at the highest to an F at the lowest. Um, second, an area, another one we get a lot of questions on, uh, some companies are UN Global Compact signatories, and in that capacity, they publish um, particular CSR disclosures. Uh, participating companies are required to prepare what's known as a communication on progress, and the COP details their work to embed the UN Global Compact's 10 principles into their strategies and operations. Now, there's, of course, a multitude of other voluntary disclosure frameworks, recommendations, and questionnaires that companies manage to or are asked to manage to, and and new ones continue to be introduced. For example, in uh, January, the World Economic Forum published a consultation paper on proposed ESG metrics.
1: As you indicated, uh, CSR disclosure consists of disclosure across a variety of different media. Uh, how should companies decide where they should put their CSR disclosures?
0: Well, um, the placement of mandatory CSR disclosures is of course, easy, since that's going to be dictated by regulation. So, for example, the Conflict Minerals Rule, the UK Modern Slavery Act, those are reasonably clear on where disclosures need to be or should be made. Uh, For voluntary disclosures, I find placement is more art than science. Uh, Most companies have CSR disclosures on their website. Then they also prepare the CSR sustainability report, and that's, of course, also made available via the website. Um, There's usually some overlap between the report content and information um, found elsewhere on the website, although that does vary significantly from company to company. And so the challenge for a lot of companies, is figuring out how to best um, strike that balance uh, in in placement. My advice to clients is to determine placement of CSR information based on the nature of the information and the audience for the information. Uh, Policy statements typically go on the website. Um, Information that will be updated more frequently also tends to lend itself to website placement uh, in addition information that's geared toward Prospective hires who are less likely to look for it in the CSR report, that's usually uh, better suited for the web. Similarly, information on community-based and charitable programs uh, also should usually be on the website. Um, in contrast, more granular CSR information, so things like materiality maps, priority assessments, greenhouse gas emissions data, human capital metrics, or a detailed discussion of CSR program elements that's typically better suited to a CSR report. Um, We're also starting to see companies further segment or slice and dice their CSR information to better reach the intended audience. So, for example, some of our clients are putting together separate summaries of key ESG metrics or a separate SASB disclosure document that's geared specifically toward investors, even if most of that is just a cut and paste uh, from what's in their CSR report or information that's otherwise on their
1: website? Mm. Uh, part of part of my background and experience of, of now just about 40 years of, of practice uh, as a securities lawyer uh, has been in the disclosure area and, and in fact, when I first started out, uh, I was involved with, with clients that were uh, trying to figure out what disclosures to make in, in emerging um, areas in which there wasn't much uh, uh, history uh, to look at, such as biotech, for example, trying to uh, disclose to investors the potentials of, of uh, biotechnologies companies at a time when there there really weren't any to begin with. So, um, I became very uh, sensitive to the risks and potential liabilities associated with disclosures. And, And certainly, it would be interesting to get your take on these specific risks and potential liabilities that are associated with CSR disclosures.
0: Well, there, there certainly are um, risks or potential liabilities, and I do think, you know, it's important for companies and practitioners um, to keep in mind that CSR disclosure can have consequences. Um, there's been several class action lawsuits that have been brought against companies arising out of the modern slavery disclosures. Uh, those suits have been brought under consumer protection and truth in advertising statutes, and a number of states, as well as some foreign countries, um, in the last few years, we've also seen a number of companies that have received inquiries from regulators concerning uh, responsible sourcing claims that they've had on their websites. Um, historically, securities fraud suits based on CSR disclosure, I think, were viewed by most companies as a, a pretty minimal risk. Um, although there have been a number of these suits, as a general matter. The prevailing view was that CSR information was not material to investment decisions. Uh, With mainstream investor interest in CSR disclosures now not only well-established but increasing, I think we're over time uh, going to see uh, a pretty substantial uptick in securities fraud claims that that are based on CSR disclosures. And to underscore that this isn't just a theoretical risk, we're actually defending one of these suits right now. Um, in addition, uh, company CSR disclosures that are inconsistent with uh, actual practices can create risk under substantive CSR legislation, and we've already seen some regulators, you know, um, pointing out those, uh, those inconsistencies in some of their inquiries to companies. Um, so, so certainly uh, an area where disclosure can have consequences, not only mandatory disclosure but voluntary and something that um, companies need to be increasingly sensitive to.
1: I doubt that we're at the end of the evolution of CSR disclosure. Uh, What are some of the developments on the horizon and your predictions over the near, mid, and and longer term?
0: Sure. So uh, CSR disclosure definitely will continue to evolve. Um, As we've discussed today, investor disclosure demands are increasing. Uh, Over the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a significant number of companies reporting in line with with SASB and TCFD. We're already seeing companies do that, but that's going to dramatically uh, increase. Also, many companies that have been publishing CSR disclosure for several years or more are starting to rethink their approach. Uh, There's a growing consensus uh, that a lot of the CSR information that companies put out is just information for information's sake. It isn't resonating uh, with investors or other stakeholders. I think over the Mid to longer term, we're going to start to see disclosure get more thoughtful and targeted, and that's certainly already starting to occur. Um, A question that I often get from clients is whether we're going to see a winnowing of disclosure standards and frameworks. Uh, Personally, I don't expect that that's going to happen anytime soon, uh, and at least for now, we instead seem to be uh, moving in the other direction uh, to the consternation of many in this area. Uh, but I think over time there will be clear winners and also uh, – as well as also RAMs among the standards and frameworks, and that's going to provide some clarity to companies on the approach that they should take. Um, so everything I've discussed thus far um, in response to your question has uh, applied to uh, voluntary CSR disclosures and turning to mandatory disclosure. Uh, I think that that's going to continue to increase as well, as I noted before – Uh, Additional CSR regulations are pending or proposed across several different jurisdictions, and many of these contemplate um, mandatory disclosures in most cases coupled with more substantive disclosure requirements. Um, Not all of these regulations will be adopted, but certainly a portion of them will be, and I think we're going to see a very different regulatory framework in this area
1: um, five years from now than we do today. Michael, we're near the end of our time for today but but i do like to leave time at the end of uh of the programs to uh to give each of the guests an opportunity to uh, to freeform a bit and, and not necessarily respond to to my questions but perhaps share with us um thoughts on things that um they might have written in their chapter if they had more space or a, or or a Special project that they're working on, or their ideas about, uh, you know, the next big thing in the area, and that and all that. So, what uh, what 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 last things do you want to share with our with our listeners today? Sure.
0: Well, I won't hit on all those, but let me hit on a couple of those of those. So, uh, although I think I've had what was maybe one of the longer chapters in the book, um, we only scratched the surface on the topic. Um, so, I think that's important to to point out to people, uh, and I'm also looking forward to writing an expanded version of the chapter as a as a standalone guide um, for the section. Um, let me then also just mm-hmm. take your question on next big thing. Um, and, you know, given the breadth of the area and of the practice, we have a lot of next big things we're involved with, probably a, a dozen or so, if I were to count them all up. But mm-hmm. for Revit, I'll highlight just three. Uh, that we're spending a fair amount of time on. Um, first, um, over the next couple of years, I think we're gonna see a dramatic increase in investor-focused CSR disclosure, uh, including based on SASB and TCFD, um, and I've talked about that a little bit already. Um, the other two areas we haven't talked about as much. Um, second, I think forced labor issues and supply chains and related compliance measures, uh, that's gonna become a much bigger focus Uh, For a lot of companies, uh, we're already starting to to see that for a variety of different reasons uh, and in a variety of different geographies around the world. Uh, And then third, um, new mandatory human rights due diligence requirements. Um, We're going to see more of those as part of the increase in regulation in this area, and we're also starting to see across several jurisdictions Uh, increasing corporate liability for human rights violations. Uh, And all of of these are going to, I think, create new compliance challenges for global companies.
1: Well, Michael, as you mentioned, we are looking forward to uh, learning more about this topic uh, from the guide that you will be preparing for the business law section as part of our our rollout of additional information on corporate social responsibility. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the response to the book has been quite gratifying, and there's just you know, really tremendous interest uh, among among the legal community, uh, both law firms and, and in-house counsel struggling to figure out uh, to keep up with all the evolution that you talked about uh so uh, i i think that will be an exciting project uh, i want to thank you michael for participating in the in the recording today and in the and in the project itself and i want to thank everyone who's listened today for joining us i hope you will join me for other programs in the series and you can find information about the series and all of my guests and the desk book as well as resources on serious topics provided by the contributors at my website, allangutterman.com. If you have questions for me or any of our guests, send me an email at allangutterman at gmail.com. In addition, as I mentioned earlier, uh, please do not hesitate to visit the Ropes & Gray website uh, for all the materials and information, including some longer articles on some of the topics that that Michael mentioned today that I, I have gone and looked at, uh, which are, which, which are quite valuable and, 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 and very practical and everything. In any case, thanks to all of you for joining again. So long for now. And I hope to be talking to you again soon.
0: Thank you for listening to the ABA business law sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content to explore more about this topic. to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.